Welcome to the Biology Society of South Australia podcast, where we bring you conversations in all things biology in our state. I'm your host, Brad Bianco. Today our conversation is with Dr. Miles Tarrant from the University of Adelaide. He did his PhD study on the fossil record of Myrtaceae in Australia. Dr. Miles Tarrant, thank you for coming on the podcast. <coughs> That's, uh, it's nice to be here, thanks. It's really great. This is actually a podcast I've been really looking forward to doing your PhD study, paleobotany in Australia. What a great topic. I can't wait to get into it. So um, traditionally with my guests, I like to ask how they got into studying biology and how did you come across doing a PhD? Uh, yeah, that's a really good question. Biology was the only science subject I did in high school and uh, had a bit of a change of heart at the last minute and I was going to do an arts degree and I thought, no, nah, I, better, I better study science. I better do something good useful. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so not saying arts isn't useful. And then I, I don't know, I went through my evolutionary biology degree. I read a lot of Richard Dawkins in, in high school and I thought, oh man, this is it, evolutionary biology. Got all the answers. But as I went through my degree, I got interested in like ideas of you know, climate change and I majored in paleontology quite accidentally just because I did geology. And then, uh, like, I did botany and biology and everything else like that, but ended up majoring in paleontology. And then at the end of it, I thought, oh, shit, I better do honours or something. And then, uh, and then I ended up working with Bob Hill for the next uh, five years. <laughs> That's really cool. Yeah. So your PhD, I did a bit of reading on the, some of the things you published, and un- unusually, nowadays, you actually named and described four fossil species in Myrtaceae. That's right. That's, that's correct. That's pretty cool. So tell me a bit about your study and how you came to describe some new species. Yeah, so I guess it all started in honours. I was given some fossil leaves and, and Bob said, off you go. And then one thing that's really interesting with a lot of these fossil leaves that we're working on is that they're mummified material rather than your sort of traditional stone or, or rock kind of petrified remains that you might be sort of used to seeing or thinking of. So how does something become mummified? Uh, well, that's a really good question. It's quite unusual and doesn't seem to happen in very many places other than Australia, at least in this in the spectacular kind of preservation that we have here. But basically you need uh, a very rapid deposition of, you know, maybe say a storm or something or a, or a big event blows, blows a whole bunch of plant material into a lake or a river and then uh, it gets rapidly covered in anoxic and importantly alkaline conditions. Mm. And then you end up with like organically preserved cuticle and lignified remains of plants. So the specimens aren't compressed then? <coughs> or they are compressed but to a lesser they degree? Are, they are compressed but you still get three-dimensional structure in some cases. Like most of the fossil flowers and fruits that I was working with had some level of three-dimensional structure left. Cool. So yeah. your sites were where in Australia? I started off looking at fossils from Tasmania. So the first site was Little Rapid River, which is an Oligocene site northwestern Tasmania. And that was my honours project and then started my PhD project. So I started with fossil leaves, ended up finding fossil fruits and flowers, sort of branched out to another site after I wrote my first paper to an, a Miocene site also from Tasmania called Golden Fleece that nothing had been published from before. And then that's sort of about 15, 20 million years old. And then New South Wales, Alpine New South Wales from a, a mountain town called Keandra, also about 15, 20 million years old there. So people would be familiar with Myrtaceae if they live in Australia. Yeah. Eucalyptus, Lophostomon, Melaleuca. Bottle brushes, yeah, tea trees, you name it, yeah. Those fuzzy flowers that people see that smell good. Yeah. 
So what were the, the plants that you were looking at? What would they have looked like in life? What are they most similar to? Right. So you have to infer a lot of things, obviously, when you're working with a fossil record. I mean, I can't, this is obviously, a, I've got to try and describe this. This is not a, not a visual medium, um, but they were certainly brushy flowered, capsular fruited, probably much smaller flowers and fruits than, actually that's a really unusual thing that we find out in the fossil record right throughout, even outside of the Myrtaceae, is that a lot of these plants are much smaller than their modern day counterparts, and we're not quite sure why. Uh, but yeah, brushy flowers, the, the, first, uh, the first three species I identified were all species of Metrosideris, which were the first uh, known occurrences of Metrosideris in Australia. And Metrosideris is the New Zealand Christmas tree, the... The Pahutakawa. There it is. Yeah, or the, or the, <laughs> or the Rata. And in Hawaii, it's called the Ohia Lehua. And right throughout the Pacific, there's different Pacific Island cultures that have a, have a particular name for it or, or something like that. Uh, and yeah, iconic in New Zealand for the big brushy red flowers at, at Christmas time. Mm. Yeah. So I've always been curious. You're you're looking at a rock, mm-hmm. or not actually a rock, but mm-hmm. remains of plants mm-hmm. in rock. How do you go from looking at a rock to analysing signals of morphology or anatomy from those rocks to actually? describe the species taxonomically this is this and i know it from these characters how does one actually do that yeah yeah so it's really fun it's really really fun in the first few fossils i worked on had already been collected and already been taken out of sediment so i didn't get to do that process but the second paper i worked on it was a newly discovered site and some of the fossils that i worked on had already been sort of dug out of the sediment but i got to macerate you call it macerating blocks of sediment and you end up with this big block of, well, in this case anyway, with these big blocks of dark mud, and you can see bits of sticks and twigs and stuff poking out of it. Like it looks like it could be mud from a river today. Wow. But first of all, you have to get it dated, and unless there's a volcanic rock on top, you can't date it any other way than biostratigraphically. So you send it off to a palynologist, and then they look at the pollen in the, in the sediment, and they tell you, well, it's probably about you know, 30 million years old, 20 million years old, depending on the relative abundance of pollen. And so you get this block of sediment, you macerate it, so you melt it down in uh, a tub of basically just hydrogen peroxide, weak hydrogen peroxide, and it starts to bubble and fizz, and you get you get sort of just, it's, it's incredible, like the forest floor just floats out of the rock. Wow. Uh, and so you get these sometimes whole leaf uh, remains. You don't get the organic material of the inside of the leaf preserved, but you get the cuticle of the leaf and these whole leaves just come floating out of this block of mud and then they're the easiest ones to get out and then there's lots of painstaking hours of like pulling out tiny little fruits and seeds and whatever you can find and obviously there's not just Myrtaceae and Myrtaceae are just a tiny fraction so there's like mm-hmm. untold hours of taking things out putting them in jars what's that what's that trying to figure out what all these things are then you take those bits of cuticle or you take those fruits and with the cuticles you have to sort of bleach them and stain them and mount them on slides or so similar to what you would do for living absolutely In- it's the same process right. essentially each right. way though fossils tend to be much cleaner because there's not any annoying biological material adhering to the cuticle uh-huh. you can tend to just bleach them and stain them right away whereas with biological with living leaf samples which I would compare my fossils to there was a lot of brushing away tissue and you know melting it in acid and trying to get rid of the stuff that was adhering to the cuticle 
And then once you've got the cuticle, you've got this amazing array of morphological characters you can see under the light microscope or the scanning electron microscope, the stomatal shape, size, angles, the external cuticle texture, internal cuticle texture, the shape of the cell walls and everything else like that is all preserved on the cuticle, which is like really cool. Mm. Uh, and then when it comes to the fossil fruits and flowers, well, you're just looking at a really old fruit or flower. Right, and so your morphology is, yes, would be the same it's, as a yeah, plant. Exactly, straight morphology. Right. And it's you know it's amazing. Some of these fossils, the first ones I worked on, had just been sitting in little vials for you know, 20, 30 years, since the 90s. And you know you just have to have the right eye. You just have to look at it and go, oh, shit, I know what that is. You know? <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's sort of the process. So obviously, you know, nowadays we would, if we're trying to sort out the systematics of a particular plant or fruit, we would be looking at genetics, obviously. These fossils don't have DNA. Yeah. So it's purely morphological, or are you mixing a mixed analysis with living taxa, or how does that Yeah, well, it's, it's purely morphological. Other paleobotanists probably try and incorporate molecular phylogenies and try and place their taxa into molecularly... Uh, molecularly? molecular uh, phylogenies and you know some people might have a mixture of, of living and, and, and fossil plants in that respect certainly people in John Conran's lab do interesting projects like that but I you know I didn't really do much genetics or molecular stuff uh, in my undergrad I'm sort of kicking myself that I didn't do that now uh, but I was much more interested in morphology and, and you know how long can DNA last for 100,000 years like not long. Can so it last for 100,000 years? I think in the most extreme cases, that's the... Well, that's, that's way that, longer that's than I thought. That's about the <laughs> Yeah, that's like very extreme, like Arctic tundra kind of, yeah. yeah. Okay. And even then, I don't think it's like the best case scenario, but certainly the, the techniques are getting better and better for getting information out of old DNA. But yeah, so that was never going to be a part of my project, and, and traditional paleobotanists just do a kind of taxonomic morphological descriptions of the fossils that they're working on and then you compare that against the taxonomic morphological descriptions from the floras of Australia or whatever and you describe species that way so it would have been good I'm, I'm sort of thinking now if I'd had a, a molecular part of my project uh, that would have been uh, helpful for, for employment prospects but uh, <laughs> yeah you know <laughs> so you were looking at taxa fossil taxa that were tens of millions of years old is it unusual that they fit into modern genera. Syzygium was one of the species, and Metrosideris is another. They're both extant taxa. Yeah. Is that unusual that you find millions of tens of millions of year old fossils that fit into modern groups? Yeah. So this is a really interesting question, and it's sort of like it's a philosophy of of science or philosophy of paleobotany question. Like, can you actually? place these things into genera like well how do you delimit genera in time in history from the fossils before or things are constantly evolving yeah absolutely but i think you know at least paleobotanists understand and maybe when other people take the fossils they they might not be so delicate about it but paleobotanists understand that what they're putting forward is a hypothesis at the very least i mean you know we're working with a very small set of characters but we, if we can put forward a rigorous argument and say, look, we've looked at these four or five characters, because that might be all you have really available. Wow. Uh, but, you know, these ones seem to be synapomorphies in the hundreds of, of taxa that I've looked at. And I can tell, I can, I can 100% guarantee to you that they're Mertaceae because of these synapomorphies. And I'm pretty confident that because of these synapomorphies, they're they belong to these genera chances are you know who's to say they don't belong to an extinct sister lineage right or, you know like you just can't you can't rule that out no right. one can rule that out but it's 
it's a hypothesis and I think a defensible hy hypothesis. So some people refuse to put things into living genera or species at all and they say, no, I'm not going to do it. I can't stake my re reputation on that. And other people will, will take the opposite view and they'll try and place things in living genera because that's a, you know something people can work with, something they understand. If you put a, a nonsense fossil genus name on a fossil, no one's going to blink an eye. No one's even going to see it. But when you say, I've published the first fossil record of eucalyptus, like that's a, you know, that's special. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. Another thing I'm curious about with your PhD study is you actually got to name these plants yourself and you, you were the person who described them. And um, I've noticed that you've given all four species you described honorary names. They're named in honour of a particular person. How did you choose the person to honour and what did some of those people mean to you? Yeah, so in the case of my first paper, I feel a little bit embarrassed about this now, actually, almost. Like, is this uh, the cartoonist? Uh, yeah, so Michael Lunig. I really like Michael Lunig. And I just read a book of his sort of essays and, and poems or th and things at the time, and I was just thinking, you know, like you always see people name things after celebrities and, and, and all that kind of... And I thought, oh, yeah, why not? I'll do it, I'll do it. And I and I'd sort <laughs> of... I just met him, like it was, it was perfect, and you know, I shook his hand and... I, said hey can I name a fossil after you and he was like yeah that'd be great <laughs> uh, so I did that and then afterwards I thought oh man why did I do that <laughs> like, uh, but yeah no I'm kind of I, I feel I feel pretty happy about that and then the others are much less kind of whimsical whimsical yeah I thought it was my first fossil like I, I better do something fun but then the next fossils uh, Metrosideros dorsoni or dorsonii John Dawson was probably the preeminent Metrosideros botanist in the world. Like he, he described all the species, he put all the groups together. I was looking at all of his papers from the 70s and the 80s, like these beautiful old, you know, straight morphology plant with these incredible floral diagrams and incredible cross sections and seed diagrams. And, you know, it's just like beautiful stuff. And I thought, well, I, I can't not name one after him. And then the next one was named after a guy called Shane Wright, who'd done a lot of molecular phylogenies more recently, looking at the sort of uh, biogeography of the of the group in the southern hemisphere. And I thought, well, you know, he's an appropriate person as well to, to name one after. And then my final fossil, so there was three fossils of Metrosideros. My final fossil was Sozygium Christophelii, and Dave Christophel was my supervisor's PhD supervisor. He was a professor of paleobotany here at Adelaide, oh, cool. and he died very suddenly. And so I just thought... He was the first person to describe any Motaceae fossils, and I like oh, his cool. his papers were kind of the the starting point of my whole PhD. So it seemed very fitting that I named one after. So, so after other than him. the cartoonist, they're yeah. they're named in someone's contribution to yep. the body of literature that you're adding on yourself. Yeah, yep, absolutely. That's really cool. Yeah. So you didn't do any field work personally, did you? Uh, no, not outside of going out into the field to try and learn how to identify the plants that I'm working on. But yeah. So how important, I, mean, I assume there would have been quite important, herbarium specimens and museum records and specimens. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so the herbariums were the most important uh, places that I went to. So I went to Sydney to the National Herbarium in, of New South Wales several times and my co-supervisor was a guy called Peter Wilson. He's the world expert on Mertesi and really, really lovely guy, just incredibly knowledgeable. Like, you know, you can ask him about any plant in the Mertesi and of the 5,000 species, he can shut his eyes and think about it and then he's like, yeah, it's got hairy stems. <laughs> and it's got you know pinnate leaves so uh yeah amazing guy uh so i spent a lot of time in the new south wales herbarium looking through collections taking samples of leaves mostly and then 
uh, you know, it's like a whole painstaking process and you've got to, you know, put in your collection uh, information in the herbarium sheet and you've got to be very careful about how many bits of material you take and then you have and fruits and, and flower material and things like that as well. I basically couldn't have done the project. There's no way that I could have mm. gone to, for instance, with Metrosideros, all of the Pacific Islands to get living material of, of plants. Uh, there's no way I could have done that. You know, I did get to go to New Zealand a couple of times, but there's no way I could have done those collection trips. There's no way I could have gone to New Guinea and collected the tropical Myrtaceae from there. So, like, it's just an incredible resource, really. And I don't think there are that many people doing collections for no. paleobotanical work of that kind. So I was a bit of a novelty for the people there at the oh, herbarium cool. as well, which was cool. I know that when I took my Plant ID course as part of my degree last year, um, how much they stressed descriptive, accurate records on your herbarium sheets, you know, every, oh, whatever, how mm-hmm. important could it be? But, you know, now that I look into it more, mm-hmm. you know, obviously you don't know what someone's going to use your herbarium records for. Yeah. A hundred yeah. years from now, yeah. someone might pull out the specimen you collected and yeah. do some kind of UV yeah. analysis that no one's yeah. even thought of. Yeah. yeah, a really good example of that is some of the work that, uh, my supervisor and other colleagues have been involved in is you know they are looking at the physiology of plants in the fossil record and they want to compare that to plants from the modern day world and so they might want to look at how do altitude gradients affect a certain plant physiological trait or climate gradients affect a certain plant physiological trait they'll go to the herbariums and because that information is recorded they can then you know work out how those things affect the plants in the in the real world and then apply that back to the fossil record and you can get like just incredible yeah, this stuff that you, these people, when they're collecting it, certainly aren't thinking of. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, those those 18th century, 19th century yeah. botanists, they surely yeah. couldn't have known about yeah. DNA yeah. molecular analyses. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Going to the herbarium and seeing some of those collection sheets that are, you know, 200 years old from the first kind of colonial botanists is pretty is pretty cool. Mm. Yeah, the yellowing paper and, the, yeah, the plants are just falling apart. It's, it's great. <laughs> Still good for DNA. Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully. So... The plants that you described, what was the what was the environment that they were growing in like? What can we infer about a, the past Australia? You know, what was Tasmania like? What can we tell about the environment from these fossils that you described? Yeah, so that's pretty interesting. The most straightforward one is the Syzygium fossils from uh, New South Wales, from Keandra, from the Snowy Mountains, something like 1,400 metres above sea level. You know, it's alpine heath now, maybe a few eucalypts, you know, snow gums and things like that holding on at, at that point. But the, the, the fossil deposit there, you know, clearly shows we're looking at subtropical to kind of temperate rainforest. You know, these huge syzygium leaves where the, you know, the, the nearest kind of uh, living relatives are probably northern New South Wales to, to Queensland. I managed to get those down fairly confidently, or at least I put forward the idea that they belong to a particular subgenus uh, within Syzygium, which is one of the biggest woody flowering plant genera in the world, by the way. It's like 1,100 species. It's insane. Wow. It was fun doing the Syzygium is? Syzygium, yeah. Wow. So it was fun doing the lab work for that, getting as many leaves as I could from as many different subgenera. Uh, but so, you know, that kind of thing's much more straightforward. You've got a, a broad, uh, easily identifiable kind of rainforest taxa in a, you know, what's now an alpine heath environment. With the Mentrosideros, it's much more interesting because some of the places that you see them in New Zealand, you know, they're not particularly wet, although they are, and they probably have higher rainfall than most of Australia. But they're, you know, they might be on rocky outcrops, and they're some of the first colonizers of like lava islands in Hawaii. Like they've made it all the way up to Hawaii and 
through all these Pacific islands and they're, you know, they're sort of sometimes in rainforests, sometimes in kind of coastal vegetation. And it's not clear based on just the, uh, the environment why they're not in Australia today. Metrosiderus is not in Australia. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, prior to these fossils being described, everyone, it was just sort of a mystery. It was like, how is Metrosiderus everywhere around Australia? Like, we're talking... Everywhere around the Pacific? Yeah, we're talking New Zealand, we're talking Papua New Guinea, pretty much every Pacific island, Hawaii, the Bonin Islands near Japan, and there's one in South America as well, which is like... That one's contested whether or not it's sister genus or actually in Metrosideros at the moment. But anyway, you know, it's pretty much Metrosideros. So how is it everywhere and not in Australia? And some people thought, well, you know, it's probably just evolved in New Zealand and dispersed from elsewhere. Uh, these fossils sort of make the claim that it was probably a Gondwanic thing or maybe it even evolved in Australia before radiating out. But why isn't it in Australia today? Like, that's a really interesting kind of question. Is it because it doesn't cope with fire? Like, all of the places that they're growing today don't necessarily have fire. Uh, in New Zealand, Metrosideros is being completely decimated. Whole forests are being decimated by possums. So maybe it's because we had, you know, mammalian browsers. So there, like, but it, it's pretty hypothetical. And without much more data, it's harder to make any kind of strong claims about what the environmental implications of that are. But certainly these things fit into the bigger kind of picture, the, the puzzle of, you know, the Australian vegetation and climate over the last 40 million years. Well, you know, most of the continent seems to have been rainforested, if not forested, and certainly much wetter than, you know, than today. Um, it's much harder to know anything about the interior of Australia because there's less, less fossils from right. there. But, uh, yeah. So um, what happened? So what happened? Yeah, I mean, if we got... I think it's really cool that you can infer things based on the physiology or the anatomy of a plant you find in the fossil record. You can mm-hmm. infer the, what the environment was like that mm-hmm. that organism existed in. Mm-hmm. So we've got tropical plants in Tasmania. Well, mm-hmm. what happened to Tasmania and how did Australia become so arid? Yeah. Um, well, it's, it's really interesting. And I think I'm probably a bit biased because you know, I've done my project here. But Australia is just so interesting, geologically speaking. You know, it's moved more than any other land mass on Earth in the last 60 million years. It's still moving, right? Yeah, it's still moving. And it's just it's just going to chug right over Indonesia. You know, <laughs> like. And so, you know, you go from being essentially attached to Antarctica until 40 million years ago when the final split happens. And so you've got a few things happening. You've got Australia moving and changing and, and moving much further towards the equator. So that's changing climate. You've got the circumpolar current around the Antarctic forming when uh, finally South America and Australia break off from Antarctica. You've got the circumpolar current forms for the first time. That's so you only get the ice cap forming 30 million years ago. And at the same time, you've you know global carbon dioxide levels are going down and down and down and down and down and down for various reasons. And you know the world's becoming drier and and cooler, and it's just getting harder in Australia particularly because it's go it's it's you know it's moving through the through these radical kind of climate transitions. But then you've got this other really interesting thing to consider that nowhere else on Earth has had this kind of 60,000 years or more maybe of humans changing the landscape with fire right. on a massive scale. So who knows what, you know, like maybe Metrosideros was in Tasmania and Australia until very recently and only it's, it's you know, it's been wiped oh, out very recently by fire. Interesting. So it's hard, to, you know, it's hard to say. Yeah, that's something I actually hadn't considered. Yeah. That's really interesting. So fire, that's that'd be a good spot to go to next. So one thing I read, which I found really interesting, was that eucalyptus at one point in time, I believe, occurred in New Zealand. And we Mm -hmm. have 
fossil where we have evidence of that in the fossil record mm -hmm. whereas it no longer occurs in New Zealand and the inverse is true for Metrosideros mm -hmm. at one time in point it occurred in Australia and no longer occurs in New Zealand is fire part of this story yeah well I mean again it's hard to say but that's that's the best theory it makes sense like New Zealand only broke off from Australia maybe like 30 million years ago or something like that and so you'd imagine that they had very similar vegetations and those vegetations will become less and less similar as time goes on. Uh, certainly New Zealand's sort of, you know, kept drifting, drifted south, southward uh, and stayed, stayed wetter and cooler. And mm -hmm. so you've got a whole bunch of different climatic fluctuations. Actually, the interesting thing, though, is that now eucalyptus is in New Zealand uh, and it's in South America, too. So the oldest fossil record is from South America from 50 million years ago. That was only published uh, a few years ago. And that changes everything. You know, the eucalyptus turning up in, in South America really blew a lot of people's minds, at least in paleobotany. You know, it's a, <laughs> it's a, uh, it's a little niche. <laughs> but now eucalyptus is one of the most invasive tree pest species in both New Zealand and South America. And you're sort of thinking, well, how, hang on, how, how come it did so poorly that it went extinct in these places? Maybe it was because of the, a lack of a fire regime in, in those places, and Australia just happened to have a, a fire regime. There's, there's some evidence to support that. Yeah, it's, it's hard to say. It's kind of like it's tantalising. Why, why are these things? One of the things that I read that I found particularly striking about the, the ecology of eucalyptus is that not only is it like most other Australian plants where it's adapted to a fire regime, but it actually promotes fire. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So I always say this with my in ecological issues in the first years, we do the fire ecology part of the course at the beginning. And I, you know, some trees just want to see the world burn. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's the anarchist tree. Yeah. 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 But it seems to, it seems to be the case. They've got all these adaptations, which uh, suggest that they may actively promote fire. And it, it gets tricky. What's the correct terminology? Like, have they actually evolved to promote fire? John Connor will, will school you on on this. He's he doesn't believe in this. Uh, he doesn't. Oh, I, I, he's he's got some additional caveats that he'd put onto the put onto the argument. Uh, but you have to talk to him about it. But certainly, it seems that you've got these trees, which not only are supremely adapted to fire, and that they can regrow from the epicomic buds and things like that after a fire sweeps through. They've got what's called decorticating bark, which you know the bark that the sheds off ribbons. the big ribbons yeah. and then when that burns you know little bits of it fly off you've got the essential oils yeah. in the in the leaves which are just like fantastic fuel and then you know these things grow and then the landscape burns and they take over like yeah. it, it seems like a pretty good it's it seems adaptive you know like uh, certainly but then again you've got this really interesting thing to consider what did the australian landscape look like 60,000 years ago and how much of the dominance of eucalyptus, like we're talking 70% or more. I think of it's the, 75. 75% of all of the biomass of the plants in Australia is eucalyptus. Yeah. There's nowhere else on earth where one genus of plant is so dominant. How did that happen? Like, yeah. is that is that a pre-European pre thing? Is it a pre-Aboriginal thing? Uh, or has the, the management of the landscape for you know, the last 60,000 years played into that? Uh, we're just getting more questions here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's so great. That's yeah. so great. Well, you've been looking at the past history of the climate. Are there implications for climate change going forward? Are there things we can learn from how climates have changed in the past to apply them to what might happen in the future? 
Yeah, certainly I think so. This is one of the things that I find the most interesting. And Dave Payton let me give my first lecture to Eco Issues 1 about this last year. Not so much of the implications specifically from my research, you know, just from paleobotanical research. But if you look back in time, and this is stretching my brain a little bit now trying to think about this stuff. If you look back in time at certain mass extinction events, I think something like two or three out of the big five mass extinction events that have happened in the history of life on Earth were caused by climate change and they were caused by, you know, uh, global warming events. Or global uh, cooling, right? Or Well, yeah, there's there's a couple that were probably global cooling, there's a couple that were probably warming, and there's only one... But that, climate change. Yeah, but certainly climate change. There's only one that wasn't caused by climate change, and that's the bolide that comes and wipes out the dinosaurs 65 million years ago. Yeah. Even that's contested. Uh, some people think that was climate change. It could have induced climate change, though, right? Could have induced climate change. Maybe it was climate change was happening, and that was just the... Topped them off. The, just the death knell, yeah. But... In all of those cases, and this is another really interesting thing that I think going back to the fossil record uh, is so valuable, and it's not something you hear in the kind of mainstream conservation arguments, in all of those cases, the extinction record, or at least what we can calculate from, from the fossil record, the extinction rate was slower than it is today. And we're going through these extinction rates which are comparable to any of the climate change events in the past, any of the extinction events in the past. And when you go back to the biggest extinction, the end Permian extinction, it's, you know, what is it, like 85% or 90% of marine organisms go extinct. Like there's the trilobites, the mm. famous trilobites all disappear. And what's that linked to? It's linked to the fastest ocean acidification event that had ever happened, caused by the fastest mm. global warming event in history at that point. And what are we living through right now? It's much faster. So not the total yeah. amount so far, but the rate of change. So... There are really good precedents in the fossil record and the paleoclimate record for saying, "Hey, this is something hey, to watch this out for." Is like this is worse than you think. Yeah, yeah. wow, that's yeah. scary. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what, for me, I think it. I couldn't think of anything else to study but conservation right now. You yeah, know, we're facing so many problems that we yeah. need some answers to, and yeah. I'm glad that there are people like you looking back and saying, "Hey, look, you know, we should take take note of what's happened before because yeah. it can totally happen again." Yeah. And there's this idea kicking around now of paleoconservation, and I don't know if it'll it'll get off the ground, but it's it's precisely uh, using paleontological information and paleoecological information to try and inform co conservation decisions. So one of the examples that my supervisor gives is of it's a little alpine possum, you know, in incredibly mountain pygmy possum. the mountain pygmy possum. That's it, you know, and you probably know the story already. But incredibly restricted in its range. But if you look at the fossil record, they were they were loving it and in all kinds of different environments. And then in trial runs, they put them into these different environments, and fine. they do just fine. Yeah. So maybe it's just a historical accident that they're reduced and limited in 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 population to these small areas. And and maybe with some you know careful management and and using the fossil record as a guide, you can. Uh, do some sort of rewilding uh, and and maybe have some success in that respect. That sounds like a future podcast. Yeah. <laughs> well, Miles, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a really great chat. Um, if people want to find out more about some of the research you've done, if they want to read some of your papers or find you on social media, how is the best way that they can find you? So I am on Twitter. I don't really use it very much, but I'm at Acacia Pendula, which is the <laughs> weep, the weeping mile. It's because the world is That's so good. messed up. That's no. Good. Uh, and uh, otherwise, I'm on Facebook, I'm on ResearchGate, or you can just shoot me an email, uh, mile.taran at adelaide.edu.au. Dr. Mile Taran, thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. Cheers.
episode. We hope you enjoyed it. If you're liking the content, why don't you check out our back catalogue? We release a new episode every fortnight. If you'd like to support the production of this content, you could become a member of the Biology Society. Visit biologysocietysa.com.